Good morning, Christ Church. So today we had Ryan and Natalie back with us. They were off in uh, Prague and Oxford and London the last few weeks, and they were without children. <laughs> and it was pretty cool because, you know, after they've raised Stone up to the ripe old age of, I believe, five, uh, Stone now is able to care for Kessie. So they were off for a couple weeks, and Stone was able to hold down the fort here. This week, I was on my way walking to work, and I walked by my neighbor's house, and I, I, I was chatting with my neighbor a bit, and she's a, she's a cool lady. I like her because she likes my dog, and most of my neighbors don't like my dog. He can be a little noisy sometimes, but Brutus is a sweet little dog. But anyway, I was walking by, I saw her and was chatting with her a bit, and I invited her to come out to our church. And it was clear that in talking with her that she had had a bit of a bad experience with church. And so, you know, she was a little hesitant and, you know, kind of thinking about it. But I wonder if you've ever had that experience of inviting someone to church and maybe they showed up and maybe actually you're here today, you were invited by a friend, somebody invited you. And when you invite someone to church, you take a risk and you're just hoping when you come to church that, you know, uh, crazy Uncle Leroy from, you know, every church has a crazy Uncle Leroy. They just stay away, and, um, and, and most of all, you, you, you hope and you pray that the pastor doesn't talk about the two most uncomfortable and offensive topics you can talk about in church if you're a visitor, and that is the topics of money and hell. Well, we've been in a series over the last few weeks called Stories Along the Way, and today we approach what is perhaps Jesus' most disturbing and uncomfortable parable, and it centers on the topics of money and hell. And so if you're here visiting with us for the first time this morning, I'm sorry. <laughs> Come back next week. Um, but the story opens, and we are introduced to two very different characters, the rich man and Lazarus. And their experience in life could not be more different. And look at how it's described. It says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. And so first, Jesus highlights his designer clothing. He wore purple. In the ancient world, this was a sign that you were rich. I mean, only the most affluent people could afford purple robes. It, it, it demanded uh, this snail be crushed. It was very expensive, hard to find snail, apparently. I don't really know why you would crush a snail to get the color purple, but this is what the commentary said. So I have to tell you. But uh, anyway, he, he wears these designer clothes that show to everyone where he sat on the social status ladder, and he feasted sumptuously every day. So Jesus highlights his diet. Now, it's obscured in translation, but the original text actually could be translated. This little phrase, he feasted sumptuously every day, it could be translated as, quote, um, he lived on a cruise ship. And it wasn't just a weekend Ensenada trip on Carnival that you found on sale. This was a 45-day trip to Tahiti and back. And so for breakfast, uh, he had pancakes and those waffles and bacon and sausage and linguisa. And then he went to the omelet bar and got one of those. And then he had muffins and cinnamon rolls. And then he came back for lunch and the, uh, the, the soft serve bar. And then for dinner, he sat down and it was just whatever you wanted. And I remember when I was on a cruise, actually, a few years ago, uh, I remember my brother-in-law, we would kind of laugh because, you know, you look at the menu, and you're just like, what am I going to choose? And then they come up, what, do you, what would you like, you know? And, and, and you can't decide, and so what do you do? 
you just order both, right? You order one of each. And my brother-in-law and I would always order a steak on the side. It was just like, we'll have the shrimp and, you know, scampi and a steak on the side and, and whatever. But um, this is this man. He's just eating sumptuously every single day. And, um, and, 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 and you know, I, I love the artwork behind me because it, it it sort of depicts him almost as like he's, he's just full and he's kind of in a dance move, doesn't it? Kind of look like it. He's just sort of, like he just finished his delicious breakfast and lunch and dinner. He's just feasting every day in luxury. And he, he's, he's, he lives in a palace because the text indicates that he has a gate. Only people who had palaces had that kind of gate. So this guy is living the life you wish you could live. He is living comfortably, he's got a palace, he's got sumptuous feasts, but the only problem, the, the only thing that just is a bit of a drag is that every time he goes off the cruise ship, right at the gate, there was laid a poor man whose name was Lazarus, and he was the kind of guy who would make you lose your appetite because he, he just had that odor, and his body was covered with these open lesions, with these sores, and then he kept looking at you longingly. He, he kept wanting to eat just some of the, the crumbs that were falling on the floor underneath your table. You know, in the ancient world, they didn't have napkins. And so oftentimes what you would do is you would take an old piece of bread and you'd use it to wipe the germs and the grease off your face and your hands. And then you'd throw it on the, on the floor underneath the table. And this man on the outside, body covered in legions, uh, emaciated, hungry, long just to be fed by the, 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 the crumbs that the rich man was throwing on the floor. And then it says this, moreover, even the dogs came and licked his wounds. Now, some commentators suggest that, that what Jesus is referring to here is to add insult to injury, the dogs would come and just lick this man's open wounds. But there's a, another interpretation of this text that draws upon uh, the reality that in the ancient world, it was believed that in the mouth of dogs, there was healing properties in their saliva. And I'm told that actually, uh, that there may be some medical evidence for that being the case. I don't know whether or not that's the case, but that's... Um, but, but the idea is, uh, he's drawing a contrast here from the rich man who was absolutely indifferent to the suffering man at his gate, and the dogs, who, whereas the rich man was indifferent and would not even lift his pinky to satiate this man's hunger, at least the dogs would go and do something to alleviate his pain. They would, they would at least do something. And uh, someone, I, I know, it probably is wondering why Jesus includes dogs in the narrative, but he doesn't mention cats. And I think that's probably because Jesus doesn't love cats. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Jesus loves cats, Kenya. You know, I, I, I used to be that pastor that would always make these terrible comments about cats. But honestly, over the years, I've come to a deeper appreciation of cats. There is something beautiful about that little creature, right? I mean, it's like having a little lion in your house. You know, it's just really cool. Except for I'm told that when you die, never mind. But... Um, <laughs> But you see what Jesus is doing as he narrates this story? He is contrasting 
the rich man with these dogs, and, and the, the dogs at least will show compassion. The rich man is indifferent to the suffering that is existing right before his very eyes. Now, Jesus moves from this stark contrast that the rich man experienced in their life to another contrast that they're gonna experience now at death. And look what it says. And the poor man died and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. At death, just like at life, their fate could not be more different. Both the poor man and the rich man die because whether you're poor or rich, death is the end of us all. And those of us who are living ought to take notice. Your life is short. There is an end. And after that, you will face God. So both the rich man and the poor man died. And of course, they were different in so many ways in their life. In their death, they're, they're the same in this. They both died. And Lazarus was carried, it says, to Abraham's bosom. Uh, and, and I remember reading this back, was I, I've heard this story told many times, and I, I have this phrase that's seared in my mind from just a child, Abraham's bosom. And I've always wondered what, what that means, what it's talking about, Abraham's bosom. And this, this teaching that the, the poor man was taken, Abraham's bosom, has been captured in, in Christian artwork, and there's interesting different pieces of artwork. Uh, uh, at the center is Abraham, and to his right and left are Isaac and Jacob, who are part of the three uh, patriarchs. Um, and then here's another image, Abraham just sort of carrying them in a sheet you know, on the side, which is sort of an odd image, right? But that doesn't really quite capture, I think, what the text is getting at. I think this one does. I think what it's describing is at the end of the age, Jesus pictured the inbreaking kingdom of God when it comes in its fullness as a feast. And he described a feast that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob would be partaking in. Abraham, of course, was the friend of God. He was the father of faith, the father of the faithful. And he is the prominent one at this meal. Uh, in Jesus's imagery, uh, Abraham is host at the meal. And in this text, Lazarus is brought to his bosom because in the ancient world, when they would eat a great feast, they would recline and you would oftentimes kind of lean into the person next to you. And here, Lazarus is put in the very place of prominence and closeness and intimacy. I think metaphorically describing that at his death, he is brought near into the very presence and closeness with God. But the rich man's experience could not be any more different. There's a great reversal. You know, in life, Lazarus was left out. He was left out of the meal, left out of the house, left out of the temple because of the legions on his body. But now Lazarus, who was left out, is brought near. And the rich man, in contrast, who had it all, now loses everything. You know, it's interesting. Uh, this story actually appears outside of the Bible. In fact, um, uh, it's found in the rabbis in the days of Jesus about seven different versions of a story like this of a rich man, a poor man whose fates are reversed at death. It's found in Egyptian priestly literature. It's found in the Near East, uh, different characters, but essentially the same story. And, and it, it once bothered me 
to discover that the same story or one like it is found elsewhere because I wanted everything in my Bible to be found only in my Bible. You know, that was part of my respect for the Bible is that nothing in it is found anywhere else. But I've come to understand that there's a reason why this story was so common and why it was found in the world of Jesus. Stories like this are found everywhere because the rich man and the beggar, Lazarus, are found everywhere. The best minds, economic, political, social, theological, have been put to the test to understand the problem and relieve the world of Lazarus squatting beside the dogs on the sidewalk in front of the rich man's house. But after all of these centuries, he is still there. He is still there. It's a complex problem, this rich man, this poor man in the same neighborhood. But at the heart of the story and at the heart of all stories like it is a simple one. A rich man eats a full meal in full view of a beggar, and he dies, and he goes to hell. The rich man died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So what is, what is hell anyway? We're, we, we need to remember that what we're reading here is a parable of Jesus, which means that it's full of metaphor and symbolism. In other words, don't read this literalistically and try to draw a bunch of teaching about hell. You're like, oh, well, in the age to come, there's gonna be, you know, Abraham's on one side and he's got little people in his side, you know, and, and then there's a window, he looks out, he can see people suffering and then there's conversations that goes on. No, this is a story, it's parable, but it's intended to speak to us about realities of the age to come. And I think at least what it's saying is this, is that the ugly interior life that we can cultivate when we refuse to love and be loved can be a hell that begins to cultivate right inside that darkness we choose when we willfully shut our hearts off from the love of God and neighbor. And it's a sobering thought, you know, this dark hell that we nurture within ourselves can be carried into the next world. Hell is a profound and imprisoning misery that we impose upon ourselves when we reject the love that alone can set us free. C.S. Lewis imagines that um, the human will can be sufficiently intransient in its selfishness and resentment and violence, and it can become so damaged that even when it's exposed to divine glory for which all things are made, it will absolutely hate the invasion of that transfiguring love and will be able to discover nothing in it but terror and pain. As C.S. Lewis says, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. But what's striking about this story in Luke is that at this, after this contrast between how they lived in life and what happens in the afterlife, there comes a conversation. And this is utterly unique. It's striking because it's different than what's found in the stories of the rabbis and all this stuff. Jesus generates a conversation between the rich man and Father Abraham. And look at what it says. He called out, he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. You know, the rich man still thinks he's in charge. Go get Lazarus. He's a servant, right? He's a, you know, have him come. You know, Lazarus is over there nestling in Abraham's side. He's like, 
No. (laughs) And look at Abraham's response. He says, well, first of all, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner received bad things, and now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. It's as if he's saying, look, rich man, there was a chance you had in this life to share what you have with Lazarus, to connect with Lazarus. The opportunity you had has been closed. And then he says this, and besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. I think one of the most disturbing phrases in this entire narrative is that phrase, the chasm is great and it has been fixed. There is no turning back. So the man hears this sobering news and he turns to Abraham now with another request, another demand. He says, well, uh, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's, send him to my father's house. You know, send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. Isn't that interesting? When he finally lifts his eyes and sees that there's somebody else in this world beside himself, the only ones he can see are people who are just like him. People who dress like him, who vote like him, who act like him, who are in the same station of life as him. His brothers, his five brothers who are also rich, he's like, man, they're on the same path as I am. Send Lazarus that he may go and warn them so that they don't come to this place. And notice... Abraham's response, it's interesting. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Abraham says, look, they have the Bible. They know the, te- they know the responsibility. Didn't Moses say, if your brother is poor and hungry, don't become close-fisted and turn your back on your brother, but open up your hand wide and share with your brothers. Didn't the prophets come and rebuke Israel because they were not sharing their bread with the needy? He says, look, they have the law, they have the prophets. But the rich man says, no, Father Abraham, these are a special case, you know. They're gonna need some shock and awe. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will change. You know, I know, (laughs) this is, the rich man's like, look, I know they have Bibles. Look, we all have a Bible. You know, they've got Bibles on the shelf. They've got Bibles on the coffee table. Uh, They got Bibles that they, 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 they go to church and they, they read the, they were in, were in Awana and they read the, they know the Bible. They need something more. Maybe if someone gets up from the dead and comes to them and spooks them, you know, um, Abraham, haven't you seen, you know, uh, A Christmas Carol? You remember what happened to Scrooge? I mean, maybe if we sent the ghost of Christmas past, maybe if he comes and says, boo, you know, he hides behind a, a wall and comes up and scares them, maybe then, maybe then they'll get the message. But Abraham said, If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. 
He says the human heart doesn't work like that. Change is more complicated than that. You can't scare people into sharing. You can't guilt people into giving. You can't shame people into generosity. That's just not how it works. And it's not sustainable. It will not last. Neither will be they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, the story ends. You know, I didn't want to preach this parable. I was working on it this week. I was like, this is way too convicting. You know, sometimes when you're studying the Bible, you know, and, and you're me, you know, this is my job. I get to spend a lot of time in it. And I'm spending time marinating in the promises of God, the gospel of God throughout the week. It is so good. And I feel like I'm at an advantage. And then I come to a text like this. And I feel like I'm at an extreme disadvantage because I had to sit with this all week long. And I felt a deep tension reading through this story and the stuff that surfaced for me. And I wanted to relieve the tension and maybe some of you will want to relieve the tension. But this morning, I want you to sit in a minute in this tension. Of course, you can get up and leave right now if you want to. But I just want to make three observations three things that we learn from this story. The first thing I think Jesus is doing in our story is Jesus is exposing a problem. You know, in some ways, this is not exactly a story about hell or about money. This is a story about indifference. It is a story about indifference to human need right in front of our eyes. You know, why, why is this man condemned? It's not because he's rich. You know, Abraham was also rich, but Abraham wasn't there. Abraham was somewhere else. This man's problem was not that he was rich. It was that he was indifferent. You know, there's, there's nothing wrong, you know, with riches. Some of you, look, you know how to make money. And you know how to start businesses and grow businesses, and you're good with finance, you're good with stocks and bonds and trading and real estate. And, um, and, and you know, if, if you're good at generating wealth, God bless you, we're glad you're here. In fact, stay at this church and tithe. <laughs> you know, th- there's, nothing, there's nothing wrong with, 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 with money. The, the problem here is not that he had money, it's that he didn't share his money. You know, I remember when I was... Um, in my 20s, I took a couple trips to a very small country in West Africa called Burkina Faso. At the time, it was the third poorest country in the world. I remember one trip, uh, uh, a young man came with us, his name was Louis. And Louis was just 18 years old. And I remember when he came back, he said that he was constantly uh, asked by some of the older members of our congregation, didn't traveling to Burkina Faso make you feel so thankful that you live in America? And he said, actually, that wasn't really what I felt. I didn't feel exactly, yeah, sure, I felt gratitude. But more than that, I felt obligation and responsibility. Because there is real human need that we can meet. The command to the rich of this age is not to become poor, but to be generous and rich in good works and to share liberally. 
with those who are in need. So this man's problem, we could put it like this, it was self-indulgence coupled with indifference to Lazarus. Now let's be honest, this is not a unique problem to this man, is it? I mean, it is so easy to get caught up in the things that we want, that we like, shopping for more stuff, our favorite technological gadget, uh, a new car, a new kitchen, a new house, and to get so absorbed in our desire for comfort and to make our life just the way we want it, and even to surround our little lives with a bubble of insulation from real human need, from the stuff that worries us or scares us in downtown Los Angeles, and just to keep our lives intact and, 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 and to, to, to engage in self-indulgence while we are indifferent to Lazarus, who is squatting on the sidewalk beside the dogs in need of bread. And so number one, Jesus in our text, I think, is exposing a common problem, the common problem of self-indulgence coupled with indifference. But I think Jesus is doing something else in our story. I think in our story, Jesus is revealing to us something about God. And the truth is this, God is not indifferent to Lazarus. You know, the rich man was indifferent. He walked by and didn't see him. But God saw him. The rich man came by. The rich man never learned his name, but God knew his name. You know, it's so interesting in the parables that Jesus tells, uh, there, there is never once, not in any parable, a character that is given a name. Only once, and it's only here, and note well that it is a beggar on the side of the road whose body is covered in legions, who nobody wanted to get near. Everybody would be tempted to dehumanize and to marginalize and refer simply to them as the poor or the homeless. But for Jesus, this is not the poor and it's not the homeless. This is Lazarus. He has a name and he has a face. He has a story. Something got him here. And the rich man never took time to know why Lazarus was laying by his doorstep. Lazarus, for all intents and purposes, was invisible. He was invisible to the rich man. And in Lazarus' invisibility, he shares the fate of much of the poor and the sick and the exploited and the wretched of the earth. Every society finds ways to shut its eyes, to put fingers in its ears, but we are never entirely successful in keeping them out of sight and sound, though we do our best. And every once in a while, a novelist or a poet or a journalist or a preacher tries his or her best to stick our nose in it, but by and large, we avert our gaze, we tune out the sounds, we sanitize our environments, and we manage pretty well not to see or hear or smell or touch Lazarus. But God doesn't. You know, oftentimes, the question is raised, if there is a God of love, then why is it that there are so many children who are starving for lack of bread? Listen, children are not starving in our world because God will not share with them. Children are starving because people will not share with other people who are created in the image of God. You know, 
In 2018, Oxfam reported that the 26 wealthiest individuals held under their power and control more wealth than the bottom half of the world's population. They also reported that if just the, the wealthiest 10% would give 5% of their wealth away, it would enable us to feed 2 billion people throughout the year. People are not dying for lack of bread because of God. They are dying because we have closed our hearts and we are not sharing what we have with other people. And this is not God's hearts. Lazarus is not invisible. God knows him. God sees him. And he is welcomed into the most intimate place, right in Abraham's bosom. You know, when we see Christ face to face and we are united and transformed by the infinite love and beauty that has been the source of all love and all beauty, we will see faces who then will be glorified and radiant, who in this life were malnourished and emaciated. And listen, part of being a disciple in the kingdom of Jesus is developing better eyes, eyes to see, ears to hear, heart to understand real genuine human pain. Lazarus needs neighbors who will see him, who will drop the meme-level rhetoric and discourse and cliches and self-justifications and just see him. He doesn't need neighbors who will depersonalize him and label him. He needs us to see him and to hear him and to understand something of how he got to where he is. God is not indifferent to Lazarus. Thirdly, Jesus in our story is calling us to action on behalf of Lazarus. You know, this is often called the rich man, the story of rich man and Lazarus. But there are some characters in our story that often are forgotten. And it's not the rich man, and it's not Lazarus, and it's not Abraham. It's the five brothers we meet at the end of the story. It's almost like all along Jesus has been leading us to these five brothers who are hearing the Bible. And he's wondering, how are we responding to his kingdom that is broken into this world? A kingdom of reversal, a kingdom where those at the bottom are being lifted up, where those who are dehumanized are being humanized and given a face and a name and dignity and worth. This is what's happening in the kingdom of Jesus. And we get to these five brothers and these are the ones who are still alive, who still have time. The chasm has not yet been fixed. They still have time to share. They still have time to become a more generous, a more self-sacrificing, a more given, a giving kind of person. Listen, life is short, isn't it? You know, last week, my older brother turned 50. And I am exactly 20 months younger than him, which means my turn is coming. You know, it seemed like just yesterday, my brother and I were 15, 16 years old, and then I blinked and I'm almost 50. You know, life is so short. And the choices you make today are forming you into a certain kind of person. And if you keep caving into the forces of fear and self-protection to this feeling like I'm too stressed, I'm too busy, I'm too overwhelmed, 
Listen, you will always be too stressed. You will always be too busy. You will always be too overwhelmed. You will never have enough to give and to share. You have got to decide today to open up your heart and your life to human need all around you. So Jesus here is calling us into action on behalf of Lazarus. Now, you might be thinking, well, what exactly are you, are you, what is this, exactly does this mean? And I think for most of us, often when we think about Lazarus on the side of the road, the first thing that maybe comes to mind is the person you see in this inner medium, center medium, holding up a sign asking for money. And of course, that could be Lazarus at times to us. But there is so much more human need all over the place And there are so many other ways to become a generous person in how you live and in how you engage in this world that humanizes Lazarus and actually makes a difference in their life. Yes, you can and ought to give more of your money away. You and I ought to invest in in organizations like Union Rescue Mission who are doing incredibly good work, real, effective, long-lasting work Compassion International, real, effective, long-lasting work. We can lower our standard of living. We can have less, you know, cups of coffee. We can um, spend less on ourselves, and we can give more away. But I don't think it, it stops there. It probably doesn't even begin there. You know, most of you have jobs, and you have work. And, you know, Lazarus needs teachers who will notice him, who will care for him. Lazarus needs nurses in the ER room who will humanize him and who will dignify him. Lazarus needs lawyers who will fight on his behalf. Lazarus needs counselors and social workers. Lazarus needs foster parents. Lazarus needs no shortage of all kinds. Lazarus needs entrepreneurs and business people who will start businesses and provide opportunities for employment and believe in people who maybe don't have the best resume in order to enable them to actually start generating revenue and earn an income. There's all sorts of ways in which we can live our lives on behalf of Lazarus. We need to expand our imagination, and perhaps more than that, we need to expand our hearts, and we need to expand our understanding. So often we stereotype, we make assumptions, we boil it all down to it's either the responsibility of the government, the government needs to take care of it, we need to tax more, or it's, it's their personal responsibility. Listen, Everybody who has studied these issues at a depth level knows that these are generational wide problems. They are systemic and they deal with individual responsibility and the breakdown of the family and governmental policies and systemic racism and systemic injustice and and, and generational poverty and all sorts of things. I mean, problems are complex and so solutions demand so many different avenues. And it probably actually touches upon what just about almost any of us does throughout the week with our work. There's one more thing. And at this time, I want to invite our band to come up. And Listen, um, how are you feeling right now? If I were just to get a, a read on the giltometer. Can I just share with you as a pastor that my intention today 
It is not to make you feel guilty. And I certainly don't want to load upon you burdens that I myself do not carry or do not know how to carry. The rich man's problem is not that he didn't do everything. None of us is called to do everything. The need is so overwhelming, and the world is not yours to save. But listen, here's where I wanted to close. It's just by saying this. You don't become a generous person through guilt or through shame or through scare tactics. The only thing that ultimately will create lifelong, deep, meaningful change is not guilt and it's not shame. It is grace and the generosity of God. You know, the rich man is not condemned by his riches and the poor man is not saved by his poverty. Lazarus's name actually can be translated helped by God. Or we could just put it like this, you know. Abraham points out the chasm is fixed. Nobody can cross from this great banquet and feast of intimacy and love over into the pit of hell that you have created for yourself. The chasm is fixed and Abraham can't cross it and Lazarus can't cross it and the rich man can't cross it, but there is one who can. There is one who left not the bosom of Abraham, but the bosom of his father, the eternal son. And the eternal son took on human flesh and blood and entered into our world of self made hell and darkness so that he might enter into our own hells of our own making so that he might bear in himself all of our own self-centeredness and wrong and break its power over our lives so that he might freely say, look, I can carry you on my back with me out of the tomb and into resurrection and ultimately into the father's table, into the intimacy of the father's side. And you can have this by grace. And when we allow that message and that truth to go deep into our hearts, when we nourish our own hearts on the grace and the, uh, the generosity of God, it has the power to transform us into gracious and to generous and self-giving people.